just want to begin with a bit of clarification and just get rid of this misnomer right out of the way. Jesus is not just one man. Jesus is not just one character in Scripture. Jesus is Scripture's fulfillment. Jesus is what the prophets and the kings and the priests look forward to. Jesus is all of the promises of God brought into fulfillment in God's word. In this passage this morning, our passage is full of Old Testament symbolism and fulfillment in Christ. And it's so rich and it's so deep. And I really want you to pay attention. So get your Bibles ready. Get your notes ready. Get your your, your pens ready. We're going to move through a lot of scripture here. I encourage you to write these references down and go back and look through them throughout the rest of the week. Because for most people, the Old Testament and New Testament are so disconnected and they don't understand how we even need the Old Testament. Because oh, we, have, we, we have everything in the New Testament we need. God was a different angry God in the Old Testament. No, he wasn't. God is always angry at sin. God is always gracious toward his people. That has not changed in the Old and New Testament. We're going to see a lot of that this morning. Uh, but one of the things we're really going to see here is how Jesus called on the Old Testament and how the fulfillment uh, that he came to usher in was prophesied about for hundreds of years before he came. We've seen this in our Roman study, where again and again, Paul makes these great theological points. He describes justification by faith and sanctification and glorification and the remnant of Israel and all of these great themes that he quotes Old Testament passages that look forward to these things. That's why also in our Roman study, in any study we do, we're always going to ask, how does this text teach us about and point us to Christ? So we're going to see that this morning in full display this is also going to be a great prep for those of us in, uh, in the biblical theology class tonight. This is what we're going to be doing over the next year. Uh, we're going through a book called According to Plan by Graham Goldsworthy. If you're not in the class already, sorry. Uh, this requires you to read ahead of time and requires you to be prepared to be a part of the conversation. We will go through it again, uh, but it's on the back shelf. It's a recommended reading list. And when I'm putting this introduction together... I found I couldn't say it as well as as he did. So uh, in the introduction to the the fifth chapter, I'm just going to quote verbatim because I I think his description is great. And I encourage you, if you want to know, how do I read scripture? How do I understand how scripture points to Christ? How do I understand how the Old Testament and New Testament fit together? How do I understand God's revelation from Genesis to Revelation? This is what we're doing in the class, and the, the, the book is really helpful. And people in the class would, would, would love to talk to you about what they're learning, and that way you can test them to see if they're actually learning anything. So this is what he says in his introduction to chapter 5. According to Jesus, the Old Testament is the Word of God, the Scripture which cannot be broken. Jesus also claims that he himself is the subject of the Old Testament. His teachings can uh, constantly point to the Old Testament as as that which he fulfills. Thus, the Old Testament does not stand on its own because it is incomplete without its conclusion and fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. No part of it can be rightly understood without him. In this sense, it is about Christ. God's revelation in Scripture is progressive, moving by stages, From the original promises given to Israel until the fullest meaning of these promises is revealed in Christ. While we come to understand the New Testament in the light of what goes before it in the Old Testament, it is God's fullest revelation and final word in Christ that gives meaning to all things. Thus, Christ, and therefore the New Testament, interprets the Old. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning, beginning in John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those, be- those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this really is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. 
Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd who does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, Does your law judge a man without first, our law, judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. O Lord our God, before there was anything you were, before we could even imagine who you are, you knew us. You loved us enough to send your son to fulfill everything that the law required, everything that the prophets prophesied, everything that the singers sung about. Fully God, fully man. To fulfill all the promises of God. To be our sacrifice, to be our mediator, our intercessor, and our king. Lord, I pray this morning that as we look at this text, that you are glorified. That the name of Jesus is lifted up and exalted as it should be. That all of the scriptures sing forth your praise. And that we as your people would be transformed in our hearts. That your spirit would open our eyes and our minds to see you in your fullness. And that you would bless us this morning. Bless us with knowledge of you. Hearts for you. And lives that reflect you in your glory in this dark world. Lord, I just pray for this time that your spirit would teach and guide us. Give me the words that I would need to say that would be yours and not mine. That I may become lesser so that you can become greater. This entire morning in our lives will be an offering to you because you are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there was great significance in this feast, the Feast of the Booths. The tabernacles, which we we touched on the last two weeks. Now we're going to get into the last day. And the great thing about these feasts is that the, the scribes and the historians of the Jewish people kept amazing records of what happened. They described to the detail what was going on this entire time. And we're going to get into that this morning. And I want to kind of set the, the stage. So here's what you need to know. First of all, this was a great time of praise. This was when all of Israel came and they shouted and they danced. And there was a lot of water symbolism, which we'll get into this morning. And then in two weeks, we're going to get into the light symbolism, uh, which is amazing in itself. But this morning, we're going to focus on this great water ceremony, they they call it. We'll get there in just a second. As David mentioned earlier, the cornerstone of Jewish liturgy, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, it's called the Halal. Okay, what, is, what, what does that mean? You've all heard of the word hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Halal means praise. This is the praise portion of the psalm. And as David said, throughout the week, they would continue to sing and it would get more and more robust and more and more vibrant until it culminated on the last day. And on this last great day where we find ourselves today, when the last verse was read, the people would shout and cheer and dance. They had jugglers and flamethrowers and um, fire breathers, whatever. They didn't have flamethrowers. Um, but it was a big party. and It was a celebration to the grace of God and the glory that he's shown them. There's this great procession of the Levites. The Levites were the, the priests. And we think about Old Testament priests as being kind of stiff and they bring sacrifices and they do. But they also led worship. The priests would sing and they would play every instrument that they had. And they would march from the south of the city of David. And we'll get there in just a second to the north where the temple is. And all along the roads, the people would, would, would dance and cheer and sing because their God is great. Just like we did this morning. And this was an occasion that no one wanted to miss. Everyone had to be there. This was the biggest event of the year. 
This is what the Mishnah says about it. The Mishnah is the earliest Jewish authority outside of Scripture that comments on Scripture. Here's what, here's what the Mishnah states. He that has never seen the joy of the ceremony of water drawing has never in his life seen joy. So if you haven't been here and seen this kind of joy, you've never seen joy. And they call it the ceremony of the water drawing. Why? We're going to get there right now. So what, why water? First, it, when we looked at this two weeks ago, saw that this was a reminder of how God provided for them in the wilderness. How God gave them water. I mean, this is an arid, dry country. If God does not bring rain, you die and your crops die. And so they were praising God that, that in the harvest, the waters watered their crops and that they had water for them to be alive. But there was also significance in Exodus 17. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. But when they're walking in the wilderness and the Israelites are complaining, yeah, go figure, the Israelites are complaining, we don't have any water. What if we were back in Egypt? We had rivers, we had all this. God commands Moses to strike a rock. And out of a rock comes bubbling water which feeds the thousands of Israelites. Several hundred thousand people were drinking out of the water from this rock that just kept flowing and flowing. And so they were remembering the provision of God in their lives now, but also how he provided for their ancestors in the wilderness. But what happens often is that there's the spiritual need underneath that that's, that's missed. Yes, we need physical water, but this morning we're going to talk about the, the spiritual nourishment, living waters. So now that we kind of get that, the thematic background, okay, why did they call this the ceremony of the water drawing? Well, here's what happened in the great day, the last day of this feast. They would go to the pool of Siloam, and so this was in the, the southern tip of the city of David. So Israel has different cities within it, and the inner city, the city of David, is, is where the, the temple's at the top, the Pool of Siloam's at the bottom. This is the, the city hub. This is the downtown main street, if you will. So they go down to the Pool of Siloam. They take these golden pitchers and they draw water out of this pool. And they march for seven days. They march this water from the south of the city to the north. And everyone watches this procession. It's this great parade that everyone celebrates in. And they do this for seven days. And they're going through reading these Psalms. They're reading other scriptures. And something amazing about this pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam is what they would use to anoint new kings. And it was associated with the Holy Spirit. Even, even so much so that the Talmud says that... So the, the Talmud is kind of the overall collection of Jewish writings on the Old Testament. The Talmud says that this ceremony, the water drawing ceremony, is associated with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Even the Jews themselves knew this, and this pool itself was associated with it. What's even more interesting about the pool of Siloam is most of the pools were freshwater springs, so they bubbled up from under the ground. But what happened with the pool of Siloam is that uh, Hezekiah dug an aqueduct under the city, and it was fed by an outside stream. So the pool of Siloam was literally fed by living water. Now, a pool or a lake is not living the way they would think about it. But river moves. And so this moving river would feed this little pool at the bottom of the city, the southern end of the city. So we've got this pool that's associated with the Holy Spirit, fed by living water, part of this ceremony that was the culmination of this festive week. And it was carried in this big procession. And while it was being carried, the singers would also sing from Isaiah chapter 12. Turn to Isaiah chapter 12 for me. With all that backdrop, I want you to kind of picture the scene here. And we'll focus on one verse. So Isaiah chapter 12, only six verses. I'm going to read the, the whole thing. Um, let me give a, a preface. What's going on in Isaiah chapter 12? Isaiah chapter 11 talks about the coming Messiah, the day of the Lord, the root of Jesse who will, who will come and talks about all the things of the kingdom of God that Jesus would bring in. So on the heels of Isaiah chapter 11, that gives all these messianic prophecies, and I encourage you to go back and read it. We're not going to do it this morning. There's a praise. And when he begins in verse 1, you will say in that day, it's the day of the Messiah. In that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. 
Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. Imagine this great processional, this great time of praise and all of the Levites singing this and the people joining in the chorus. And it culminates with verse 3. This is the verse that they would repeat over and over and over again. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They were singing this. That as the water would come up out of this pool, they were to think of the joy of the salvation that their God saved them. And how sad that so many of them missed that their God would also save them from sin. They would turn to this man who was going to cry out in just a moment. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known to all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Think about this. Drawing water from the well of salvation in the messianic age and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This is what symbolism should have come to mind at this time of worship. If you knew your your scriptures, you'd know the context of Isaiah 12. You'd know the symbolism of this pool. And this is where our Messiah is going to cry out in just a moment, offer them living water. But there's still one more important detail to bring up. The time is very significant. Because if you study the Jewish calendar, their entire year was set up according to these feasts. And it says here in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the feast began on the 15th day of the seventh month. The last day was the 21st day of the seventh month. Why is that important? Turn to Haggai chapter 2. A couple of you just had blank stares. Haggai? All right, we're in the Gospels. Go back to the end of the Old Testament. Haggai is the third book back. Remember, Haggai in between the Z's. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. So turn back about seven books. Very little book. But remember that date. Told you we're going to be flipping around a lot today. But this is good. Remember that date. The, the last day, the great day. The 21st day of the seventh month. Look at what the word of the Lord says to Zechariah. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day, if you're not a Jew and you don't understand these festivals, this prophecy means nothing. But if you understand this as the great day of the Feast of Booths, the Jewish reader would have understood this. On the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. He's going to address some of the Jewish leaders. Skip down to verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. Declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. Okay? The ceremony got them to look back to Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus said the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. What's this house? If you don't know the purpose of Haggai as a a prophet, he was proclaiming against the people that they had homes, but God's temple still laid in shambles. The whole purpose of the book of Haggai is that God's temple should be the proper place of worship that it needs to be. For God's people. And so this is God's promise. I'm going to bring all the riches from all the nations into this house. Standing in the temple, speaking of the temple. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. The former glory under Solomon. The richest time in history. Not just Israel's history, anyone's history. The temple was so rich and covered with gold, but the future glory is going to be greater than the former. So this is looking towards something that is greater than Solomon. And I can tell you it did not happen in the time of the second temple, in the time of, of the Israelites. And in this place, still referring to the temple, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So think about this. 
500 years later, 500 and change, on the same day, the Prince of Peace is standing in the same temple. The Spirit of God is still with his people. He's declaring the glory of the Lord, offering peace through living water, offering the Holy Spirit that is still with him, according to the word of Haggai. And then one day, you see, we'll see in Revelation 22, that the temple of the Lord is Christ. And its glory will go on forever. So this prophecy in Haggai chapter 2 looks forward to Christ, the already with him standing there, and the not yet to when all things are fulfilled. Everybody with me? One other detail that I didn't mention until now. The last day, it was referred to in Hebrew as Hoshana Rabbah, which is the great salvation. So Jesus waits until the last day. The other days, he's sitting down teaching. He waits till the last day to stand up and declare. The, the day of great salvation, the great Savior is standing in front of them. And he stands up. So this is important here. Now we're finally getting into our text. So now that you know what you need to know, here's the detail. Now we get into the text. Does that help to know what's going on here, to know what's going on around it? Because if you just skip by, this is the last day, the great day of the feast. You're like, so what? All of this symbolism, it's so rich. It all builds up to Christ. Last week, remember, he was, teach, he was teaching and sitting. When the rabbis taught, they sat down and they taught with authority and everyone was quiet and they listened. But now, on the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, when someone stands up, they're no longer a teacher, they're a prophet. Prophets stood up and shouted and, and declared the word of the Lord. Because this is not something that the dignified rabbis would do. The prophets were usually the guys who wore the crazy clothes and gave crazy messages for, for sinful people. Now Jesus stands up and he cries out this word in the Greek. It's this emotional yell. He stands up, so he, he goes from teaching before to now standing up on this last day with all of this celebration, and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Everyone would have stopped in their tracks. Who is this guy? What does he think he's doing? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What does it mean to thirst? What is he saying here? There's a spiritual dryness. There's this deadness within recognizing this is the day of great salvation. I need to be saved. I can only come to the God of salvation. There must be a spiritual thirst. This is the formula of the gospel. Those who have the spiritual thirst, those who recognize their own need for a savior, and there's a call that goes out, come to me. We've talked about this, the general call that goes out to all. That general call comes, goes out to everyone, come to me, I will give you to drink. But those who come and drink, the effectual call works on their hearts. And they come and they, they drink. And what does it mean to drink? To believe. Remember, we spent so much time on this in chapter 6. You must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood to have eternal life. You must eat, you must drink, you must partake. If you're thirsty, come and drink. It's not enough to just recognize that you're thirsty and then come, but you must drink too. It's not enough to know that you're thirsty and to bend down, but never take a drink. It's not enough to say, yeah, I'm going to come to church, but never drink, but never partake. Why are you sitting here if you're not drinking, if you're not believing? What's the point? You can't just come and not drink. It's like a hungry man sitting down before a feast and just looking at it. And this is the good news for the thirsty. Those who recognize their deadness to sin. Those who recognize their need for a savior. That he calls you to come and drink. Jesus came and had Life in the flesh and died in the flesh and rose in the flesh so that we might have life in him. The, the, the thirsty, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the poor in spirit, would come to him and drink and be filled with waters that will never run dry. 
He goes here in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. As the scripture says, what scripture is he referring to here? So many scholars debate this because he's not quoting any scripture verbatim. But I would make the case that the, the, the theme of water and life associated with it is all throughout scripture. We're going to look at just a few this morning. And because we're going to go through a lot of scripture, uh, most of it's going to be up on the screen. And I want you to write these down and just uh, meditate on these. I want to walk us through these. Uh, so Jesus, in my opinion, uh, and, I, and I believe it's correct that... Um, He's addressing a comprehensive witness throughout Scripture. We start with a principle in Proverbs 18. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. So you're already thinking about the the life within us. What is within us is is, is bubbling up. There's something, uh, there's, there's waters within a man. Wisdom is a bubbling brook. So this is a very visual image of how God has created us, that wisdom comes from within us. And it gets a little more specific, Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, 3 says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land. He's not just talking about the land, he's talking about the people, those who thirst, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing in your descendants. Pretty close. I think this is probably the most striking one, Isaiah 58. And the Lord will guide you continually. And he will satisfy your desire in scorched places. It's dry ground, thirsty, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Sounds like living water to me. It continues throughout the prophets. Look at Joel 18. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. And all of the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and, the, and water the valley of Shittim. Isn't this beautiful? That this, this picture of, of the day of the Lord, that wine is going to come from the mountains, good day. Milk is going to come from the, the, the hills. And Judah shall flow a stream of living water. And all the kids are focusing on the last word. Like, can we say that in church? It's in the Bible. I leave, leave it as, as it will. Um, Zechariah 13. On that day, there shall be a fountain open up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Now we get the fountain associated with forgiveness, with, with, with sin and being cleansed, the purification. It continues, Zechariah chapter 13 or 14, chapter or verse 8. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. The saving waters, not even to mention, I can't get into um, Ezekiel chapter 47, which talks about living water and life-giving water coming out of the, the, the temple and giving life to anything that it touches. Which looks forward to Revelation 22, the living waters coming out of the temple and giving life to anything that it touches. Jesus is talking about so many scripture references, and I had more. I, I, this is trimmed down. Um. So he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, I think when he says scripture here, as the scripture, as the whole counsel of God has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The heart here in the the Greek is literally belly. Your, Your inner man from the inside of you will flow this living stream. And it should make them think that just like the stone in Exodus 17 began to flow, began to, to, to give water, the hearts of stone now begin to pump living water because of those who believe in Christ. It's full of symbolism, and it's a wonderful picture of the way that the Holy Spirit nourishes the believer. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Just continuing to flow out of the believer. And there's a, a, a distinction here because, I will get into verse 39 in just a moment, but the Holy Spirit... And the Old Testament will, will, will come and go. It will work for, for a time in someone, but we don't see the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. But in the New Testament, there's a difference between the Holy Spirit working on someone and working in someone. And so now we see this life-giving water given to those who will believe. This is an amazing promise. And if you've ever been to any of the, the springs in Florida or you see after a rain, 
the area right around the water is most green and is most lush and is most vibrant. That water feeds whatever touches it. And what's amazing is that God puts his spirit within us to feed us, to give us living water that is, com- that is continually supplied and never runs dry, but it also feeds whatever it touches. We not only have a fountain of living water within us, but also a fountain of, of living water that nourishes those we come into contact with. We are to nourish the brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to use this life spring of life-giving water that is within us to nourish one another. And this life-giving water that is in us is our witness to the non-believers. Come and drink. I was thirsty and now I'm filled. I was lost and now I'm found. I trusted in Jesus and he gave me life-giving waters and he can do that to you and this spring will never run dry. Then he gets to verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit. You should, this is one of those things that John loves to give you a, a commentary. You can probably put a parenthesis around this because he breaks the, the narrative to drop this theological bombshell in the middle of the letter. Now this he said about the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Spoiler alert, John's, John's jumping like 10 chapters in the future, and uh, more than that, and he's jumping into the, into the book of Acts, and he's, he's telling you what's going on here. If you're missing the message, Jesus is talking about the Spirit. And Jesus is talking about this change. Where the Spirit will be given to his believers and it will never depart. Because before we see in the Old Testament that the workers of the temple will be filled with the Spirit for a moment. The Spirit even went on Saul for a moment, but it, it never remained. But through Christ, the Spirit would remain forever. And the Spirit had not been given because Christ had not been glorified. This is another theme that gets introduced in the Gospel of John that we'll see so much after this. The glorification of Jesus. Let's, let's be clear on what this is. Jesus, in his deity, has always had glory. He says in John chapter 17, the glory that I had with you forever. He's speaking to the Father. But in in his humanity, he did not have glory yet. He humbled himself, but he would have glory. But what must happen first? He must die. He must rise again, and he must ascend to his rightful place in glory. In the right hand of the Father, in the throne of glory. And when Jesus is glorified, put in his rightful place on the throne, then he can send his Holy Spirit. That's why he told the disciples, we'll get there in chapter 14 and 16, that it's better that I leave, that I send the Holy Spirit to be with you. Because he knew that the Spirit would never leave them. Jesus said, I will have to leave you in this body. I cannot be with you forever, but my Spirit will. And I must be glorified first. One of the glorious blessings of union with Christ is because he was glorified, we will be glorified with him. We will receive resurrected, glorified bodies and we are told we will reign with him forever. So Jesus' glorification, Jesus being glorified, ushers in the fullness of his, his, his kingdom work here on earth. And gets us looking forward to one day the the, the culmination of all things, new heavens and new earth. Jesus' glorification is a major theme. We're going to get there in the rest of John. But John is just kind of wetting your appetite. You know the Holy Spirit? Uh, We'll get there. I'm just going to give you a little teaser now. And it's going to be given to believers. And it's given because of Jesus' glorification. You guys got me here? Now we get from Jesus' teaching... To now the division that arises between the people. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. So there's a division here. Um, There were two prophecies. They were looking forward to the Messiah, the Christ. They're looking to the prophet. Well, there are many prophets. Which prophet? The prophet. The one that Moses spoke about, Deuteronomy 18, 18. It's on the screen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them, uh, speak to them all that I command him. 
that prophet, the prophet that Moses looked to, the prophet that was to be like Moses, but one who would speak the very words of God all the time, that prophet. Could this really be the prophet? Could this really be the Messiah? Messiah means anointed one, the anointed one of God that is promised all throughout the Old Testament. We've touched on that before, so I'm not going to get into that too much. And so here's the question. Who's right? Is he the prophet or is he the Messiah? Yes. He's the prophet prophesied about. He's the Messiah that everyone was looking to. All of the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. He's the prophet and the Messiah. But these Jews are no dummies. They know their Bible. They said, is it? Um, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They knew their scriptures. They just were a little off on their understanding of who Jesus was. So what are they talking about here? The offspring of David. The promises of God to the offspring of David are all throughout scripture. We're going to look at just a couple. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up uh, your offspring after you. Speaking to David now, this is before David falls. This is when, when, when David is the, the good king for the moment before he gives into his lust. Um, raise up, a, sorry, I didn't finish reading it. Raise up an offspring after, after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Again, talking about the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Seed of David, kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Sound familiar? When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man and with the stripes of the son of man. Hold it right there for a second. Um, When you read this, it will trip you up. Well, if we're talking about Christ here, the father and the son and the throne forever, when he commits iniquity, we're going to go to Psalm 89 in just a moment. I won't be able to get into Psalm 89. Read Psalm 89. All of Psalm 89 is an explanation of what's going on here. But Psalm 89 gives us kind of a, uh, a commentary on it. He says, when, when his children sin, I will put the stripes on him. He will be punished for his children's transgression. So when it says here, when he commits iniquity, as our representative, our iniquities become him, become his. Imputed sinfulness, imputed righteousness. So this is speaking um, prophetically in that he will be the representative for sinners. I will discipline him with the rod of men, but my steadfast, steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away uh, from before you. And your house and your kingdom, talking, about to, talking to David here, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Why are the genealogies important? Because Jesus came from the line of David. The promises made to David and David's offspring must be fulfilled. Why was it important that he came from the offspring of David? So that the prophecies would be fulfilled. Um, what about Bethlehem? They say here, and he comes from Bethlehem, the, the, the village where David was. Oh, wait, I got one more. Psalm 89. Uh, again, read the entire psalm, but this is just gives you a snapshot. For you have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. It's all of Psalm 89. So it must come from the offspring of David, must come from Bethlehem. Now Jesus was was known as the Nazarene. And so they they knew he was from from Nazareth, the Galilee area, uh, but Bethlehem was was in Judah. So why... Is our Christmas story so important? Why did they have to make that great journey from, um, from Israel in the north down to Judah in the south? Why did he have to be born in this, this, this little town of Bethlehem? Look at 1 Samuel chapter 20. Dave, what does David call Bethlehem? If your father misses me at all, then say, this is David speaking, David earnestly asked them to leave, uh, uh, to, to leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. David's family reunions were. That was his city in Bethlehem. And it's interesting here that the Jews didn't miss this. Because when Herod is looking for the, the, the promised baby king in Matthew chapter 2, they quote 
Micah chapter 5. What does Micah chapter 5 say? But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. All the way back, the one prophesied against is going to come to Bethlehem. Why did Jesus have to come to Bethlehem? To fulfill the promises of God. Offspring of David, born in Bethlehem. They got the prophecies, but they missed the connection. They, they missed that little detail of Jesus being born there, coming out of that city. So there was a division among the people. Of course there is. Wherever the word of the Lord goes, there will be division. Wherever Jesus is spoken about, there will be division. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Because his hour had not yet come. Then we get into the officers. So the Pharisees had sent out these officers. They had uh, wanted to arrest him. And the officers came near to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Whenever you see chief priests and Pharisees, they're never up to any good. There's always some scheme that they have behind the, the, the scenes. Jesus is so threatening to them that they're constantly going after him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? He knew what they, or the officers knew what they meant. You were supposed to grab this guy and arrest him. This guy's causing, this guy's drawing too much attention to himself. He's drawing too much attention from us. Why didn't you bring him with you like you were supposed to? And the officers give this response. No one ever spoke like this man. It wasn't Jesus' miracles that offended anyone. It wasn't, you know, you know why people like to focus on Jesus' miracles? Oh, I, I want the Jesus who turns water into wine, the Jesus who heals the sick and multiplies the bread, because that's not threatening. That's easy. Everyone loves the miracles. You, you know what stops them in their tracks is his words. When, when, when he says, if you come to me, I will give you living water. That is either divine or it's blasphemous of the highest order. And they were not willing to be on the wrong side of that. No one has ever spoke like this. But of course, the wisdom of man became foolishness. Look how the Pharisees respond. The Pharisees answer them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? How arrogant. Look who you're standing in front of. We haven't believed. How could you little peons believe in someone that, 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 that we can't? If he was the Messiah, we would know. The, the rabbinical writings are full of examples of how much the Pharisees hated the common person. They, talked, they, they called them the, the people of the land, this derogatory term. How dare we associate with them? This is why they were so worked up when Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Because the, the oral teaching of the Pharisees added to Scripture that the teachers of the law should not associate with common people. That's why they go on to say, they're, they're not mincing words here, verse 49, but this crowd does not know the law, excuse me, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They connected them believing in Christ with being accursed. Now, they were applying a biblical principle, but they were applying it incorrectly. Uh, Deuteronomy, uh, where are we? Deuteronomy 27 says this. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say amen. All the people had to recognize that if we don't do the law of God, they will be cursed. But here's the problem. They weren't obedient to the law of God. They were obedient to their own laws that they added on to Scripture. So now they're applying a curse where scripture does not apply a curse. The irony there of the arrogance of man and the sadness that they did not love the people of God. That is not becoming of the leaders of God. That they, they, they call the people of God cursed. Without listen, we're going to see in just a moment. Without listening to Jesus, without giving him a hearing, without hearing him out, they call the people cursed. They didn't love them. They didn't want to associate with them. They didn't want to be near people they considered to be unclean. They were arrogant and prideful and, and, and wicked. By hating God's people, they hated God in the process. So they said, have any of us believed? 
Now, Nicodemus, if you remember Nicodemus chapter 3, he's the, the, the brave Pharisee who goes right in broad midnight to, to go meet with, with, with Jesus because he doesn't want to be found out by the other Pharisees that he might actually want to hear Jesus out. Nicodemus, who had gone uh, to him before, Jesus, and who was one of them, John puts the irony in here, well, none of us have believed. Well, Nicodemus, who's one of them, says, Nicodemus is, is not fully bold enough yet to to stand up. We don't know if he, if he ever will, but we do know that he's still around at the end of the book, and we'll, we'll get to him later. And he says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? This biblical principle is consistent throughout every, every legal society on, on, on the planet. Before you condemn someone, you give them a trial. You, you listen to them. And so he's just kind of throwing this softball out, like, shouldn't we at least listen to him? He gets this from Deuteronomy chapter 1. And uh, Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17. And I charge your judges at that time, hear the cases between you and your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall, you shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In the case it is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. It's Moses speaking. So they were not to show partiality. They were to hear everyone because they were, the Israelites were their brothers. Jesus was, at the very least, he was legally their, their brother. And he, they refused to hear him. And so how do they respond? Verse 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? So here's the other thing you guys don't know about that, that, that culture. Galilee was like Bithlow. Galilee was these, these like, um, Fishermen, these, these, these shepherds, these, these hunters, these unclean people who were not in the latest fashion, who didn't sit in the, the, the highest tables. They had, they had, they had, they had, they had contempt for these little country bumpkins. And so he's speaking, they're speaking to Nicodemus saying, aren't you two from Galilee? This is an insult. This is like right out of our modern day politics. Instead of engaging with actual facts, let's just insult each other. There's nothing new under the sun. This is what has always happened. Those who can't stand on, on, on the truth, they're left with insults. And they insult his character. And then they insult themselves. As they say, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. These are the teachers of the law. Jonah from Galilee. Hosea from Galilee. Nahum from Galilee. Um, Greek scholars, most of them will, will say that probably... Either Elisha, Elijah, and Amos, or if not all of them, are from Galilee as well. They were so angry, they were so eager to insult him that they missed what is plainly before them. The scriptures they were told to, uh, to, to keep and to teach, they're ignoring because they wanted to prove a point. So we look at their, quickly the reactions to, to Jesus here. They are all profoundly impacted by Jesus, but they're all still so scared of the cultural pressures around them. The officers driven by just amazement, but still feel the Pharisees. The Pharisees just hate Jesus altogether, and they, they fear losing their, their, their power. Nicodemus has already spoken to Christ. He's heard the message he needs to be born again, yet he's still afraid to, to boldly speak up in favor of, of Christ. I mean, being a witness for Christ may lead to a cross here on earth but it will lead to a crown in eternity. And all of them miss that. So in concluding, quickly, I just want you uh, to consider this deeply. And I hope you're continually in awe of what God reveals in his word and how everything points to Christ. And I could have went on and on and on. This is so incredible that all of the prophets and the prophecies for hundreds of years find their fulfillment in Christ. Believers, you should be encouraged. Read your Bibles. Study Scripture. Be comforted. Christ is who He says He is. John's whole purpose in this letter that you will know that Jesus is the Christ and you, that you will believe. Why does He include all these details? So that there is no doubt among anyone who reads it that this is the Christ, the prophet, the Son of God, the anointed one who would fulfill everything from God. The other thing we have to remember is that Jesus, the name of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus will cause division. Guaranteed. 
If you're a believer and you think that everyone's going to love you for the name of Christ, someone lied to you. Let me set the record straight. They hated him. They will hate you. And the, the fear that governed the officers and the Pharisees and, and Nicodemus, we can be guilty of as well. But if the God who orchestrated all of these prophecies to bring them into fullness in, in, in Christ, to preserve him and glorify him, if you are speaking in his name, he will do the same for you. You can rest in that same God. Amen? Most importantly, if you get nothing else out of this, if you are thirsty, come and drink. For the believer, when you drink, keep drinking. Know that you have a well within you of living water that will continue to nourish and sustain you forever. And if you're just here listening and you recognize a thirst, you, you have come, but you have never drank. Drink. That water, that well will never run dry. There is no greater thing that, 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 that you can do and, other than to believe in Jesus Christ and drink of these living waters. I'm going to close with one more verse, not from the Old Testament, but Revelation 22. This is where Scripture ends. What does the end of Revelation say? Revelation 22, 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, what can I add to everything we've already seen this morning? I just pray that you stir within us a desire to grow in you a desire to grow in our knowledge of your word, a desire to have our hearts and our lives transformed, a desire to be filled with living water. Lord, create and continue that thirst within us for, the, for living waters. Forgive us, Lord, when we go to things that can never satisfy us, things that, leaves, things that leave us more thirsty than when we found them. Lord, help us to look to you for all things, to exalt Christ as the fulfillment of all of the promises and everything we need for life and life everlasting. And we praise you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.